Robin for a little bit so we can speak with our guest. Welcome at Wardoggo as well. I shall speak to you all shortly. Good afternoon, everybody, or good morning if you are with the mug of coffee heading to look what's going on behind the window and in your country today there is a Martin Luther King related holiday and hope everybody's doing good. Do I understand correctly, team, that one of the planes was actually turning into the Swiss cheese by quantity of holes? I don't understand what age it is, but it makes me happy because I was sad in the morning when I understood that the, that the A50 that we were trying to get to loot for our fundraiser with Mirror Report for Andri for the electronic warfare equipment, it simply sank and the salt water does not help the electronics work better. That one is just simply somewhere immobilized in the territory of Russia. What we need actually is to get there and loot it for our fundraiser. I couldn't agree more. I wonder how much a really badly holed Russian airplane is worth. I guess there's only one way to find out. Um, sure, the Iranians would like, have, like to have a look at it. We are joined by our guest, so I'm going to hand you, hand you over to Robin, who is going to get things started. Thank you, Tim. Good morning. Well, Doug, I'm really glad you're up. My friend Yaroslav is here, and we're going to talk to him about about his decision as a, as Ukrainian American to go back to Ukraine and fight in the military and help help Ukraine win this war. Welcome, Yaroslav. Oh, uh, hello, hello. I hope you can hear me. Can someone confirm? Yep, loud and clear. Perfect. Oh. This is the joy, the joys of the interwebs. It just, it still amazes me a little bit that we can chat from so far away. Anyway, look, I, I have so many questions. It's hard to know where to start, but I'm just going to introduce you to Yaroslav very quickly. I know Yaroslav from, from work we've done together in Razum for Ukraine and setting up, we did a, a, a fair last spring with at the, the Ukrainian Catholic Church in, in New York and we've worked on other things together. I was quite surprised a couple of months ago to see a post on Instagram that he were, he had decided that this was not enough, that he was going to Ukraine to fight. I just thought it might be interesting for all of us to explore a little bit what the thought process and what goes on. How could, how does an Ukrainian American kid, I'll call you a kid, yeah. you're, a you're a kid, a young adult <laughs> making this. No words. Yes. Anyway, so you are, let us know where you are in the process and how you got there. Sure. I am currently in Ukraine and I don't know if there's a bit of a delay when I speak, but hopefully not too much. I am speaking to you from Ukraine. I am in my original hometown, Bilotserko, which is not too far south of Kiev. I love it here. This is my first home and it's beautiful to see how much it has changed. Much of it has been, I would say, modernized and really just improved that I had to really get used to it because I really remembered a lot of it. I, it's not a huge city by any means we i think at most we've ever had was maybe 400,000 people but usually we teeter around the 200 to 250,000 population mark around there so we're not a huge city but we're a very nice little ukrainian city here very patriotic this is where i was born that's where i currently am it's definitely a bit of a surreal experience to be here during war a war every other time i've ever been in bilotserko was during nice peaceful or just during peacetime and i visit my family relax and and just really enjoy what Ukraine is. Now things are different. Getting to Ukraine was definitely a, th a really interesting journey. It took me three days. 
it did not go as I planned, actually, which is quite funny because this is a bit of an ongoing thing. Most Ukrainians and people who I know who travel between Ukraine and maybe the U.S., they always have an interesting story to tell about how they get to Ukraine. It's, it's definitely going to be an adventure, whether you like it or not. <laughs> For me, it was getting to Germany. I, was, I spent a day in, well, almost an entire day in Frankfurt. Originally, I was supposed to take a flight to Krakow, Poland the day after. But that got canceled and there was no rebooking. I have some beef with Lufthansa now, but I ended up actually taking a bus to Krakow, Poland. And then from there, I actually missed my train <laughs> to, I believe it's pronounced Premish or Shemish. I had to take a taxi. <laughs> the taxi driver was actually quite amazing. He was a Crimean Tatar named him. He gave me a discount and he was really helpful. And he got me to Premish or Shemish. Correct. Somebody please correct me on the pronunciation that I really don't know Polish, unfortunately. Um, yes. There we go. Thank you. From there, you're Ukrainian. Apologize to, to, to yes. interrupt if you're Ukrainian. In Ukrainian language, it is called Peremesu. Poland calls is Shemesu. Aha. There we go. Perfect. I will remember that for the future. Once I got there, I everything pretty much went smoothly. I got on my train to uh, Kiev, and that was an 11-hour train ride, I believe. And things went pretty well. Thankfully, there was a food cart or food wagon. Like uh, I had a little cafe in there and they, I ate three hot dogs and I was very surprised with how good they were. So it wasn't, it, it was a hectic journey. I made it. I had everything testing me during those three days. The, it, it was a lot of chaos and stress, but that's just how it is getting to a war-torn country, unfortunately. It's something I won't forget. That's really what it was like. It it's, yeah, it's you are you are right. I've heard a lot of stories oh. like that. It's uh, but you got there. I'm glad. Now I'm, I'm wondering, you you decided what were you doing in in the states, and how did you come to decide to upturn your whole life to to come to Ukraine? Oh boy, that that's definitely a complicated question. I think I'm gonna have to start with the beginning. I, again, I was born in Ukraine in Bielitsetka, and uh, my family would eventually have the opportunity to move to the United States. Not all of my family, it was only the most immediate relatives. It was me, my sister, who's older than me, my mom and my father, and my grandmother, my mom's side of the family. We had the opportunity to move to the United States back in 2004, and we did it. I was five years old when we moved. I was very young, which is pretty obvious because my English is very good. <laughs> Something that Ukrainians will always remind me of. I moved when I was very young, and my family decided to move to New York City, primarily because they were told that there was a lot of Ukrainians already in New York City. There was a pretty long-standing diaspora in New York City and the surrounding states. There was a pretty decently sized Ukrainian neighborhood, or as they were told, Ukrainian neighborhood known as Brighton Beach in Brooklyn, Coney Island. That's where I grew up. If anybody knows that area, that's, that's where I spend most of my life. I will say this, moving to the United States was very interesting. At first, as a kid who just started to really grow up and gain experience in Ukraine, I really loved it. I had my friends, I started school here, and it was definitely not easy for me to just suddenly have to completely change my life around like that as a young kid. But I assimilated into American society pretty quickly. It only took me about a year to learn English. I basically just grew up in the U.S. I definitely assimilated, Americanized quite a bit. I never forgot my Ukrainian roots. I always stuck with it. I was a very proud Ukrainian, and I made everybody know. I told everybody about Ukraine and <laughs> I would always have to point it out. I'd always tell people about this wonderful little city named Bielitsetko in Ukraine because us folks here in Bielitsetko, we're very proud of our, are proud of our city. We're quite patriotic. We're also home to a very famous Ukrainian brigade, the 72nd Brigade. Kudos to them. Awesome guys. I, growing up in the U.S., I'll be honest, most people really never knew about Ukraine prior to my dawn. Most people, I, I had to get used to the fact that people 
associated Ukraine with Russia, people would, I would always get the comments of, oh, that's just a part of Russia or that's Russia or whatever. And you just got used to it. I didn't like it, but it was just the reality. Ukraine was simply just not, you know, considered that important of a country really until Maidan. Uh, post Maidan, everything started changing. One, there were many, there's there were many more Ukrainians moving to the United States, uh, especially New York. In Brighton Beach, too, we saw a lot of Ukrainians with uh, money who opened up businesses or buy out property. We started seeing a huge influx of that. And we started seeing Ukraine a lot more in the headlines and news. So uh, suddenly, you know, where, you know, I went from telling people about Ukraine and they did not know what the hell it was to people are like, oh, yeah, I've heard about this place. Now, post full scale invasion, people can actually point to it on a map, which is great. <laughs> I, I celebrate that fact. It was a long time. Yeah, that, that is a great thing. That's one thing President Zelensky pointed out in his New Year's speech last year. This is a year well, a year that people discovered Ukraine. It's a shame that this is the cause of it, but it is, it was, it's a good thing it happened. Certainly. The people have discovered what a wonderful country it is. I see Wardago has a question for yes, you, Yaroslav. Let's go to Wardago. And Yaroslav, if you could mute your mic when you're not speaking, I think people sometimes get a little bit of feedback on the no just FYM. Okay, thanks. Okay, Wardago. When you said about belief to translate in English, just for our dear listeners, the city name that is called like White Church, La Cerqua and the famous legendary 72nd Brigade is, is, is like part of the history for Ukraine. I remember our grandparents being telling us the story that before the Bolsheviks came to Ukraine, they had like a big of big big kind of partnership in, in, in that city. When Bolsheviks came, they were oppressed, they were sent out from the city and still even not being an owners, no longer of that farmership and enterprise. When grandparents came to that city, many citizens, when they were walking in the middle of the city, many citizens were greeting them and saying, I'm hello, recognizing them. That's like the story I remember from my childhood when my grandparents were telling us question i remember like all of these rumors and all of these ooh stories that ukrainians are being we are being uh, caught on the streets we are sent to army and we are forced to go and ukrainians resist going to army all of this bullshit stuff for the country that is has already one million armed forces army and from which 100 well, 440,000 are directly on the front lines that's exactly the nation that doesn't want to, uh, didn't want to go to protect their own country. Those are the kind of stories we hear. For you as a foreigner coming, foreigner being Ukrainian, but still living for a long time outside Ukraine, how did you make a choice not to go or not to go to Ukraine? That's not my question, but specifically, technically, which brigade, which unit you go, already someone, you got to some recruitment process, how it actually worked. I believe many would be very much interested because for like many perception is as soon as you cross the border, you're immediately caught uh, in slavery and they send you to army to die on the front lines, all of these crappy boost stories that many still follow after Russian informational attacks. What's your story on that point? Thank you so much. Of course, sure. It wasn't an easy decision to make, but with the start of the full-scale invasion, I actually wanted to go like during the first few days, I was trying to find a way into 
see if there's any unit or brigade or somebody who'd take me in. At that time, Ukrainians were lining up to sign up in, in the thousands. The lines were insane. There was no way I was going to get in unless I voluntarily just came here. And I knew Americans who did that, even ones who don't have any combat experience. They just came to Ukraine, joined up, whether it's with the International Legion or other foreign volunteer groups, they went out to fight, but that was extremely risky. I never actually served in the military. I don't really have any true military experience. I didn't want to do that. That, that, that would be incredibly risky and stupid on my end, but I've been looking for a way in for some time. And during that time, I would I being in New York is really the capital of, for example, protesting and really just in any sort of political activities. I was doing what I can to support Ukraine and get Ukraine out there. I helped organize rallies, marches, protests, other events, just I did everything I can to support Ukraine the, the best of my ability. I always wanted to come here. I was looking for whatever way in. During the first year of the war, it was pretty complex. Things were definitely quite disorganized. It was not really easy to get into Ukraine and actually join the military, uh, especially me as technically as a foreigner without any real combat experience. I just didn't really think it was going to be possible until last year around the summer, I started exploring. I started talking to a lot of my contacts here because I networked quite a bit. So I have a lot of connections within the armed forces here. I know a lot of foreign volunteers and I asked them, I'm like, Hey, I'm hearing that now it's possible to actually join, get some degree of training you at least get some sort of gear. You'll get most of what you need. Of course I can source and buy whatever else I might need. What, how, and really what are my options or opportunities that are available to me? Originally what I did was I went through the application process of the International Legion. Admittedly, the Legion is going through a huge restructuring and there are issues, especially with recruitment. Although it's not just them, this is an overall issue within the armed forces right now, but it's being solved, I would say. That was really what I did in the beginning. I signed up and applied to them and I started essentially contacting everybody I knew. I was like, hey, I wanna do this outside of the Legion maybe. What are, is your brigade or unit accepting people? I started preparing. Eventually I decided to come earlier. Originally I wasn't supposed to come as early. I'd rather come here if I was expected, but I also wanted to see my family here because I haven't seen them in years. The last time I was in Ukraine was during Maidan. I got to actually see the protests, walk to the camps. I thought it would be right to spend time with family and see them during the holidays. While I was doing that, I was also, I guess it's probably not the nicest way to put it, but I was shopping around per se. I was meeting with people, commanders, and people heard about me. There, there were people offering me various different roles and potential positions. I've had people ask me if I was interested in flying drones to, hey, we need interpreters, we need instructors, we need people who uh, know the languages because I can speak English, I can speak, read and write in Ukrainian, and I can speak Russian. I just, I'm not great with uh, reading and writing, and that's, that's definitely a huge asset on uh, something that a lot of people showed interest in. The moment I really noticed that there is actually something for me and there is a way for me to make myself useful here, I really jumped on it. I was like, okay, the opportunities are there. I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to hold off. I'll, I'm just going to jump on the boat and let's do it. I don't think there, I didn't want to make the potential mistake of waiting and the opportunities disappearing or just not becoming available. I, it, it made more sense for me to be here because me, I can actually meet face to face with these people. Uh, and if they potentially want to offer me a contract or show me what they have to offer, they can do it much easier, uh, rather than having to speak via telegram or signal or WhatsApp, uh, or so it just made more sense.
Um, when it comes to the specific units, I narrowed down my list of what I also found most interesting. Again, I want to make myself as, as useful as possible because uh, that's the right thing to do. At the current moment, I'm connected with an amazing individual named John who's with the 3rd Assault Brigade. They really would like me to become an, a sort of instructor slash interpreter with them to really assist them with training because there's quite a few foreign instructors within their brigade. There is, as they explained it to me when I spoke to some of their people in person, they have a very large language barrier and they really need folks like me to come in there and just literally translate to Ukrainian troops during training. I'm totally for it. I, I saw that and I said, you know what? That's the right thing to do. I feel like that's just, that's the, that opportunity was just calling for me and I'm all for it. <laughs> I will be actually going out and starting to get myself involved with the brigade and everything quite soon, most likely within next week. So this was the perfect time for me to speak to you guys because <laughs> otherwise it would not have been available. That's basically how it is. It's really not that complex. You, I will be honest, if there are people who are interested in doing something, you just have to do a little bit of research. It's really not that complicated. If you're willing to network a little bit, you should do it. There, there are ways in. Will I recommend it? No. <laughs> it's a very risky and very dangerous thing to do no matter what position you're in. Will I ever recommend it to anyone? No. I, I don't want to start trying to become a recruiter convincing people to do it because at the end of the day it's a very crazy thing that i'm doing so that's really how it is that's how it all happened but like wait oh, God, nobody God your craziness go ahead oh, that's... wait nobody when you cross the border nobody put you in the in the black when nobody put you on the front lines with, with the bar on no, your hands. That, that, I'm that. seeing the video. You're, you're, it, it doesn't work anyway, anyway, other way. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it's, it was shown on the TV. Right. Cannot be any other. <laughs> that is not how it happened. In fact, when I was crossing the border and the, uh, the border guards who were on the train, uh, the actual wagons that go and they check everyone's passport. The moment they saw I had a U.S. passport, even though I was originally born in Ukraine, they... The lady gave me my passport back and didn't even ask a single question. She just asked, what are you here for? That's it. <laughs> she gave it back to me and no problem. There were Ukrainian men on the train and they did not have any issues. They weren't just taking people like that on the train and uh, forcing them to fight. Look, I think what's happening here is most likely there were instances where maybe things did happen and people are certainly overblowing it. Russia will take any opportunity to take a story like that and uh, use it for propaganda. That That's really what it is. But is that happening on mass like you're, like you're just said? No, <laughs> that did not happen. That, that didn't even happen to me. I will be honest, it is quite complex, actually. Okay. The actual process of joining the armed forces as a foreigner is a bit um, annoying. There's quite a, I, I would say there's definitely a bit of a bureaucratic process to it. The Ukrainian, it's a lot of, it's definitely paperwork and you have to be patient, but I was not in any way in danger of being taken in and just thrown to the front lines in the trenches that there's just no way that's going to happen, especially with me or people like me who are foreign volunteers. At this, at this point, if you're a foreign volunteer, you do have to prove yourself here because there are also foreign volunteers, people who come here, stay for a few months and then leave. And that's not really reliable. Ukraine does not need people like that. Me, for example, I moved here and this is where I am now. Well, it's okay. Yeah, so similar, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to jump in. Similar thing happened to me. War doggo fellow, you talked about having a bag over your head and getting bundled into a van. I was on my way from, I think it was Lviv to Krakow. So I was by Brzezemishil uh, when they stopped the train to check everybody's passports. I had to, most of my luggage looks quite military because I'm ex-military myself. So my backpacks are kind of military backpacks. Mm -hmm. I got, I got two police, I got two policemen right up in my face saying, are you in the army? Are you in the army? Are you in the army? And what I had to do was say, no, I'm not. That solved the problem. It was amazing. 
<laughs> that's so disappointing. All that Russian propaganda down the drain. <laughs> Yaroslav, I want to go on to something else. I'm interested in, in growing up in, in the States, you, you speak fluent Ukraine, you read and write. Did you go to Ukrainian school on the weekends like a lot of Ukrainian kids do? How did you keep how did you keep your connection? This is where it gets quite interesting. I did not go to Ukrainian school. My parents, I think, knew about it and they knew that the Ukrainian diaspora communities, the really old ones, ones that originated from immigrants who came in the 90s, they have these schools. They, they exist. For whatever reason, my parents were not really big fans of them. They just said, no, we're not going to put them into that. Most keeping my Ukrainian heritage was a bit of a struggle. I will thank my parents for speaking Ukrainian. Like we primarily spoke Ukrainian within our household, which was a huge help. Like most of my reading and writing, I had to learn on my own. So I would over time, maybe find a way to purchase like a Ukrainian book, maybe a novel or something, or I would bring it from Ukraine and I would go, cause I would go to Ukraine uh, quite frequently. My mom used to like sending me out during the summers. I was a pretty uh, wild kid. I liked being outside. I liked exploring. I liked being a little, I was rambunctious. I, is that the word for it? I don't know. My mom didn't want to deal with me in the summers as a kid who there's no classes during the summer here in the, or in the U S I would spend that time in Ukraine. Ukraine. Sometimes I get to go in the winters and that is my favorite time to go to Ukraine. New Year's is a very big holiday for us. That was always the most ideal time for me to go. I love the cold. I hate the heat. That that was really my main way of kind of staying connected to Ukraine was uh, getting to visit my family here. Uh, I wouldn't really just stay within my apartment. I would love to go out. I would always ask my aunt or my other relatives, hey, can we go do this? Can we go explore? Can we go visit this city or something? I used to love talking to uh, people. We have a funny story within my family. My mom tells it to everyone all the time. When I was around three years old, we went to visit Crimea. We were out there on the beach. They have like a little bit of a boardwalk and everything. There was a time where we went to sit down at a little restaurant to sit and eat. And they had like seats outside. Eventually, somehow I was three years old and I said, you know what? I was very curious. I'm going to walk away and just do my own thing. I almost got lost, but I decided to walk to a bazaar and I was just saying hi, greeting people, talking to people and people were freaking out saying, whose kid is this? Uh, eventually my mom was able to find me, but I, I was like that. I always had that interest and uh, that Ukrainian side of me just never, it, it never disappeared. Again, a, lo a lot of it was just me having to really work to keep that a part of me. If I read, most of my reading and writing is self-taught, is reading, struggling, but I was learning. Duolingo makes that a lot easier. <laughs> I'll say that. But uh, also having people to speak Ukrainian with. My parents both speak it very fluently. They also read and write. So that's a great help. So I had someone to ask questions to. And then I had my family here in Ukraine. That was, that was that. That's really how I kept it. That's thanks. That's interesting. Duolingo is great. Uh, I just found out recently Duolingo was actually developed by Ukrainians. Of course. It's a decree. Yeah. Okay. Of course. Yeah, I don't. You mentioned your mom. Okay. This is, I am a mom. I can't imagine sending my son off to fight in Ukraine. I can't imagine feeling very proud of him if he were to do that. I, but tell me about how did your family react to this decision? Not. Not that well, <laughs> but it's simply my mom probably had the most intense reaction to it. I would say my sister was quite supportive, but the day I decided to tell my mom that this is what I was planning, I told her, I didn't want to tell her in last minutes. So I decided to say, okay, I'm going to tell her like around a month or two in advance of uh, what I was doing. Part of that, look, there was a part of me that wanted to stay last minute because I knew my mom was going to fight to get me to stay. She did not want me to go. Her reaction was not positive, which I expected. This is my mom. She, I love my mom. I care for her. I will do anything for her. If I completely expected her 
to not want me to do this because uh, it is very dangerous. We have, I have family who are serving and have been in some of the toughest parts of the front line and some of the most brutal battles that happened here in Ukraine. My family is very, we know what it's like and the risk involved. But there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of screaming. Definitely quite a lot of tears were shed. It was not an easy thing for me to tell my mom because at the end of the day, my parents worked really hard to get us to the United States. It was a very big thing for us to get here. My family in Ukraine is very proud of the fact that we have family in the United States and that we were able to make something of, our, of ourselves there. We were not wealthy or anything, but the fact that we're decent middle-class people there, that was a big deal for us. <laughs> and even my family here in Ukraine, they were very concerned. It was quite crazy for them to see me, a five-year-old kid who left Ukraine, grew up in the United States. Yeah, I got to visit Ukraine, but suddenly now I'm coming back. And like that Ukrainian side of me stayed so strong to the point where I wanted to come back. That that was definitely something. My mom at the end of the day understood. It took her some time, but she began to really understand why I'm doing it. She definitely is supportive to some extent. She does call me quite a bit, like three times a day, <laughs> always asking me, do you want to consider coming back? I'm not angry at her or anything. I will never show her any level of anger because I completely understand why. This is my mother. If I had a child and there was a war happening and if my child wanted to go to war, I too would be very concerned. At the end of the day, I think she understands that I put a lot of thought into this decision. I'm definitely well connected and I know what I'm doing. I'm not putting myself in needless risk, which I can't say that everybody's like that, but I'm very careful about that. Was it easy for her? No. But uh, at the end of the day, she will support me no matter what. I'll be there for her no matter what. That's wonderful. That's, that is very nice. I think also, if I were your mom, the fact that, that you have the English and Ukrainian language uh, abilities would make me feel a little bit better because unlike the Russians, you're not going to be, someone like you is not going to be uh, stuck on the front line as counter father. Ukraine has the sense to use you for what you can give them. So that would help me too if I were your mom. Of course. It's also the fact that many of the people I spoke to, whether they're commanders of military units, all of them have been very great. And all of them told me the same piece of advice. You will be taken care of and we will make sure that we will try to make the best use of you. You're not going to be thrown into the trenches like that. They're also very happy to see that I care and that I don't want to just be, I don't, it, it's very possible to just volunteer and go to the front lines like that, but I'm not just going to do that. That's a big plus. I think everybody understands that and makes everyone more confident, including me. Okay. Okay. Looks like we have, we have one, one of our, one of our, one of our best book club members here. We have, you're so right us. We have a book club Sunday nights where we've been discussing books on Ukrainian topics and lexicon, furious lexicon has just come up. She's one of our, one of our most stalwart members. Over to you, lexicon for a question. Oh, thank you so much, Robin. Hello, Yaroslav. I'm just furious until the Western countries like Canada and the U.S. show up with the kind of support the U.K. has just done. But I had a question for you, too. I was intrigued to hear that Although you left as a five-year-old child, you also speak Russian now. So I just wondered how it came about. I had a phone call just now, so I missed much of your answer when you were explaining about how you kept your Ukrainian so well and kept your learned reading and writing. I didn't hear that, but I'm not sure if you addressed at all what, how it is that you also speak Russian. I'm a second generation. I'm diaspora. We went to some of those weekend schools. I just learned to read and write, but not well. And I don't, I didn't get any Ukrainian fluency. But anyway, I wanted to ask that. How did the Russian come into your life? Okay. Yes, certainly. That is an interesting story I could tell. 
I, it comes from multiple aspects. My dad spoke eight languages. He did a lot of traveling for work. He also really loved learning languages. My dad spoke, of course, Ukrainian was one of his first languages. He also learned Russian because he grew up during the Soviet Union. Ukrainian and Russian were fluent to him. He learned English very well. Sometimes I would pick it up from him. He, back in the early 2000s, we did, first of all, nobody really expected that we'd get to this point where there's a war between the two countries. It was a very different society back then. My parents wanted me to learn several languages, Ukrainian, English. They wanted me to take Russian lessons. They also wanted me to learn Polish. I had a few family members who would move out to Poland to go to university. They would learn, study there, and then they would, some of them would actually stay which was common in Ukraine. A lot of people wanted their kids to learn different language just so they can open up educational opportunities. There was always the fear that we'd not be able, we would not be able to get into the United States. They wanted to make sure that they could set me up for the future. Although I never formally took any Russian courses or lessons, I would only pick up a little bit for my parents. Most of it, most of the Russian that I learned, I will have to be honest, my Russian knowledge is very informal, meaning it's how a lot of people will talk on the streets. When it comes to the more formal kind of business world, I would never include it even on my resume. It would just get too bad. And I was my Russian, I will admit uh, my Ukrainian accent will pop out like most Russians were able to tell I was from Ukraine. Most of my Russian would I would pick it up off of my friends from the streets growing up in Brighton Beach because it was a very mixed neighborhood. There were many Ukrainians, but there were a lot more Russians. The Russians had a very large influence there. There were also many uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians there from ones who moved to 70s or 80s. Both of them came from Odessa. Brighton Beach has the nickname of Little Odessa. You had a lot of uh, Russian influence there. And I would just pick it up from the streets there. I had to because a lot of the people there, they... They did not speak English. It was a very immigrant-heavy community. So you had people who just spoke the language that they knew, and they got very comfortable there. So you didn't really need to know that much English. It was definitely hard to speak with a lot of Russian people I knew there because if I only spoke in Ukrainian, then it would be very, it's hard for them to understand. Whereas it was easier for me to pick up some Russian and then just be able to speak with them. I did have a lot of Russian friends. I have to be honest about that. That's where I grew up, to, to be honest. Post-full-scale invasion, not even post-Maidan, I slowly started losing them <laughs> as, again, me being Ukrainian was very important. And at the end of the day, if they did not respect the fact that I am Ukrainian, if they had opinions that were potentially negative when it comes to that, I they, these are just not people that I would want to be friends with. Post-full-scale invasion, I can tell you, a lot of them I don't speak to anymore. <laughs> I was very blunt to them. It's either you support us or you don't. We're no longer friends, but yeah. Like I said, I'm very open about the fact that I can speak some a good deal of Russian, but I'm not great at reading or writing when it comes to Russian. So I picked it up mostly from just having friends living there. Yeah, it wasn't too hard. And as a joke, I'm sure you've heard Yaroslav and other people have, which I love, is the story about the Russian woman who's been living in Brighton Beach, or as they call it, Brighton Beach. For 30 years, she's complaining to her friend, I've lived here 30 years and the policeman still has not learned Russian. That's, that's the situation there, right? Yes. Hey, that, that's how it is. Yeah. I know way too many people there that move there. It's very comfortable. They don't have to learn English and uh, they just stay there. And if they're comfortable, what can I do? Okay, back to lexicon for follow-up. Thank you so much. That's so fascinating to, and it really helps understand, it helps us understand the culture, both of Brighton Beach and also of Ukraine. It's very interesting to hear how your family thought in those years and how they prepared you. That's wonderful. It's amazing. Shows also the power of the dominant language here in Quebec, even in French language families, so many children just absorb English because the draw, the power of the English, Hollywood, the music scene, 
is so strong that it even endangers the majority language. Yes, thank you so much for that. And thanks to Robin, she mentioned that she would be speaking to you. So I made sure I set an alarm to be able to hear you. So carry on. I'm really fascinated so to hear what uh, courageous uh, journey that made. And uh, so uh, I see a number of people up here who are have joined us in the middle of their nights. And I'm very grateful of that, Prince. I just, I wanted to explore a little bit. And that's the nice thing about interviewing someone you know is you can ask all sorts of questions that might be a little bit odd if you just stop somebody on the street and grill them about their life. This is a great, great opportunity for me. I'm just curious about what your professional life was like here. You obviously speak with, you You obviously have had a good education in, in the States. I assume you had a, a professional position. I'm just wondering what that was and how that's going to be translating into your life in Ukraine. Oh, this is going to be very funny, actually. I was always very interested in aviation growing up, although my family were expecting me to go into architecture. They wanted me to follow in my dad's footsteps. I went through that and there was a point where I had to tell them I had no interest in that. I eventually chose to pursue aviation. I studied aeronautical science in a private college in New York, Vaughan College of Aeronautics and Technology. It's a nice little school, expensive, but if you are interested in aviation and want to get involved in the industry, it's a phenomenal place to go. I also did flight training on the side. I am a pilot. I am licensed. I have my private pilot's uh, license and I'm instrument rated. And I was actually going to start my commercial training, hopefully soon. I decided to hold off on that because I already made the decision to go to Ukraine. Most of my professional life, while in college, I worked and whatnot. I, I did a lot of management work. I've worked at the federal government before. I had I, I held a federal government management position, which was interesting. Although that one, I don't know how much I want to reveal about that because they did make me swear to an oath of secrecy, as they called it. I did that and I would I did a lot of management when it comes to office-related work, and I also got to work with nonprofits like Rosin for Ukraine, which I absolutely love Rosin for Ukraine. They have an amazing team here in uh, Ukraine and Kiev, and a shout-out to them. They do phenomenal work, and that's really where most of my professional life is. It's just a lot of management, leadership-related positions. I guess that, to be completely fair, when it comes to the aviation side of things, it does not translate well to what I'm doing now. <laughs> I wish there was a way to do it. There were people who were trying to connect me to members of the Ukrainian Air Force. They're like, hey, you would be perfect to fly F-16s. I'm like, I don't know about that. Um, I actually considered flying for the Air Force at one point while I was in college. We had a, there was an ROT, Air Force ROT program. I was part of it, but I ultimately decided not to go through with it. I wanted to stick to the commercial industry. It was a, it's a growing industry to this day. There's very amazing potential to create a wonderful career. I put that on pause. I put all of that potential on pause just to be here in Ukraine because at the end of the day, Ukraine is my first home. I have a lot of family here that I love and care about. I love Ukraine itself and it's my first home and it's on fire and I want to do everything I can to try to help. That's really what it is. Unfortunately, my aviation experience will not translate that well. What does translate well is a lot of my management and leadership experience that I have. That's definitely going to help out. We'll see what happens. There is interest from the brigade that I'm going through with. They did express interest because of my experience. They said, we should potentially consider you becoming a sergeant if we can get you to that point. It'll take time, and but it's possible because, again, they really do need people to be instructors and have that ability to speak the languages. Because we do need to train the Ukrainian armed forces and they do need that Western knowledge and experience, but we need to be able to actually translate that 
training well enough to the point where Ukrainians can learn it efficiently. So we'll see what happens. Honestly, I'm at the start of the journey. But, but is the, that management experience, is, it's, I think that's going to really be really useful along with the language. I was one, I, I knew that you had something to do with aviation. I'd never really, really asked about what it was exactly. That's interesting. And I still think an F-16 pilot would be great. <laughs> I wish, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, see, so you have the other, you have the opposite issue. There are a lot of trained Ukrainian pilots who are struggling with the language. But uh, yes, as I mentioned to, to Yaroslav and we came on, I have been struggling trying to learn Ukrainian. So I have a lot of sympathy with Ukrainians trying to learn English. I think it's a really, uh, our two languages don't, don't, don't uh, complement each other that well. If you're trying to learn it as an adult, I, I envy you having grown up with both languages. Um, I'm curious to to go back to the, uh, it's like I was talking about the Ukrainian diaspora. Do you, did you find growing up that you, that you had a different outlook than a lot of the second generation that was here? I often, it's the, the general, I know with my, my, my grandma, my, my family comes from Germany and then my grandmother had, had a quite a, an interesting, she saw Germany through a rose colored glasses because she had left before the war. It was, I remember having my German cousins come to visit and saying, oh my, that it's, it hasn't been like that for 50 years. Did you find a, a like a cognitive dissonance between your perceptions of Ukraine and what was held in, in the diaspora community, the attitudes? I did. I would say I understand it now more than I did growing up. I have to be honest, growing up, I knew about these Ukrainian diasporas existing, but I never really encountered them a lot growing up. I really got to know or learn more about them and really have more experience with them post full-scale invasion. There is quite a bit of cognitive dissonance. Like there, I, I don't want to speak negatively of the diaspora because I don't think that's right for me to do because they their lived experience and their situation is very different from mine. I don't think there's ever really any hard conflict between members of diaspora versus me. I think the issue really came from the fact that they also did view Ukraine with rose-tinted glasses. Although at the same time, it's really not right to say that. Uh, they have a view and understanding of Ukraine as Ukraine was a long time ago, back when Ukraine had its first uh, kind of uh, experience with independence and then would uh, eventually lose it because uh, the Soviets would invade. They, a lot of the, the diaspora, especially Ukrainian diaspora in New York and like the surrounding area specifically came from that time period. The, the Ukraine that they understood was of that time period. That Ukraine ceased to exist a while ago. There were times where I would have discussions with members of the diaspora, even maybe potentially people who are influential within their communities, because uh, they really set themselves up in the United States. They're a very close community. They have a lot of resources. They now have money and wealth. I appreciate a lot of what they've done. They have, to some extent, kept parts of Ukrainian culture alive. At the same time, I think with the full-scale invasion, we saw them realizing that the Ukraine that they thought they knew does not really exist. Uh, maybe that caused a bit of conflict with some of them. I've had some of them openly talk to me about some of their disdain about modern Ukraine, things that they don't like. I Again, a lot of it really just comes from that simply their understanding of Ukraine and the fact that many of them have not been to Ukraine even till this day. It, it really shows. I've had members of the diaspora speak to me and tell me about how they're, how 
think, I, I guess you could say envy me is uh, the right term here. I don't want to say they were jealous or anything of me, but the fact that I was born in Ukraine and I got to experience modern Ukraine and they did not yet. There were always definitely things where I've also received comments about the language. There are, for example, Ukrainians that don't speak fluent Ukrainian. They might speak mixed Ukrainian, Russian. A lot of diaspora folks are not fans of that. They don't like the fact that there is Russian speaking Ukrainian, but at the end of the day, there's nothing they can really do about it. It's just how it is. And there, there definitely, that cognitive dissonance definitely did exist, but I don't think it openly created a lot of conflict. I think at the end of the day, everyone learned to understand for the most part. I've had my criticisms of the diaspora. My criticisms simply come from the fact that they hold on to a lot of really old Ukrainian history that a lot of Ukrainians in Ukraine today don't really care about anymore. Russia loves to talk, Russian propaganda loves to propagate Bandera and all of that stuff. If you come to Ukraine speaking about Bandera, people look at you like you're crazy at this point, honestly, it's almost like a social taboo that that was also something because a lot of the Ukrainian diaspora do hold on to that history because they're very connected to it. Maybe there's a bit of conflict there, but to be completely honest with you, I never tried to focus on it because I didn't want to create any division. I always respected people and their story, and I always found it interesting. The Ukrainian diaspora was interesting to me, and I also really appreciate some of the aspects. Like, for example, they really did keep a lot of Ukrainian culture alive within their communities from dancing to music and literature and other things. Do appreciate them and respect them quite a bit. There there definitely was some degree of division at one point, but I think now with the full scale invasion, we've united and we're all fighting towards one goal. Yeah. That that has I'm sure has made yeah. a difference. I've I I think there's just an immigrant issue generally. The country you left gets frozen in time in your mm. mind when you left. I have a friend who left Ukraine in 2000, which was really a very bad time economically. He, we laugh at each other because he says, which is not true, but he's, oh, you're much more of a Ukrainian patriot than I am, which I, it's, I, don't, I don't think that's the issue. But he, it's hard for him to see beyond how hard it was for him when he decided to leave to really understand that things have changed. I think that's a very common immigrant uh, Certainly. Anyway, okay, I think Tim has a question for you now. Over to you, Tim. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Yaroslav, for your remarks on the expat attitudes. That's fascinating. I've got a related question. I spent uh, a month in Ukraine earlier on last year, mostly interviewing politicians, political figures, military figures, people like that. Quite a common theme in those interviews was the change in Ukrainian political attitudes since kind of since 2014. Yes, but definitely since 2022 in that there was once this narrative or there was once this belief in Ukraine that is lent on quite heavily by the Russians as a propaganda narrative that Ukraine can be in both camps, right? Ukraine can enjoy warm relations with Russia. Ukraine can also enjoy the economic benefits of closer relationship with the West. The politicians I met, particularly those of a certain age, let's say people in their late 40s, early 50s, used to really believe that. And of course, the Russian invasion of 2014 and the subsequent escalation completely disabused them of that notion. What surprised me was there was at one time this sense of brotherliness. Quite recently, that sense of brotherliness obviously evaporated. I'm wondering if the same is true among the expat community, particularly in the United States. Is there, has there been like a, a shift in attitude? Oh, as I experienced it, yes, there definitely was a huge shift in attitude. I, I, look, me growing up, 
I never really personally considered Russians my brothers in any way. My father was very against it. He he really drilled it into me. He made sure I knew the history. My family does have a dark history, especially on my mom's side of the family, the Soviets. I also can't deny that there were Ukrainians like that, and I did encounter them even where I grew up in Brighton Beach, especially from the more older generations, the ones who may have come from the Soviet Union in the late 80s, for example. There there definitely was a feeling, and some of them would say, oh yeah, we're brothers and whatnot. Even one of my grandfathers felt that way. Once we've really started to see Russia get more involved in Ukraine and really attempt to control Ukraine and essentially just force us into relations with them and whatnot, I think all of that started to disappear. In the United States, I, I would be hard pressed to find Ukrainians who are like that, where they believe that, or they still have any sort of sense of uh, brotherhood or bro- anything related to that. I, I would be hard pressed to find that. Here in Ukraine, it doesn't exist anymore. I don't think I can find one person in Ukraine, of course. But with the expat community, I I think that has dis- disappeared, especially with the full-scale invasion. You'd be hard-pressed to find it post-2014, post-Maidan. With the full-scale invasion, I think you would be, it would be very hard to actually find that kind of sentiment at this point, especially where I was in New York City with the Ukrainian communities that existed there. I have to be quite honest from just my experience alone that it, I did not feel any of that sentiment anymore. I didn't see it. Sure. I I was fascinated to learn that yeah. it did, you know, it was once a political thing. Oh, yeah. In, oh, right, yeah. Right oh, yeah. It was. Obviously, it's not now. Um, thank you very much. Robert? Thank you. Oh, I see. Here we have, um, yeah, Latin is up. Let's head. Let's go to this question that I want to ask you something else. Can go ahead, Latin. Hey, thanks, Robin. Uh, fascinating conversation. My question is, uh, this is coming from, uh, from uh, I think it sounds like fellow aviation enthusiast, although I never learned to fly, but uh, I was interested in that part of what you were describing. And I know that you're, you've made it clear you're not working with or close to Ukrainian Air Force, but seeing as you came from, from there and you might have followed military aviation and its progress since y- Ukraine's second independence, I'd be interested in hearing where, what you, any thoughts you have about where they've come from and where they are now, because I, I followed them way back in the nineties and, and saw this very large bloated force with all this incredible amount of surplus Soviet equipment and watching the progression and sadly through combat experience too, to where they are now, it has been really interesting for me. I'd be interested in hearing any thoughts you might have on it. Oh, sure. I actually know a Ukrainian Air Force pilot who flies a MiG-29. There is quite a few uh, pilots from Bilitsatkos. I have some uh, experience. And for one, I'll say I have a huge deal of respect for the Ukrainian Air Force because they're. if we want to just focus on them in this conflict, they alone, it's a David and Goliath kind of story. They are fighting against incredible odds with the amount, with just the the amount of damage that they've taken, but yet the fight that they're keeping up and the fact that they're able to prevent Russia from completely dominating the airspace, it's incredible. Considering the fact that Russia has 3,000 plus aircraft where Ukraine had just over 100. And of that 100, let's be honest, maybe half of them were actually capable of flying. (laughs) That is incredible what they were able to achieve. I have a great deal of respect for them. I... I have my opinions, of course, but at the end of the day, I think it'd be more important for me to just stress the importance of the West helping the Ukrainian Air Force, especially with aircraft, because Ukraine is very outmatched when it comes to aviation. That is somewhere, that is a field that Russia has a very large advantage in. Air defense has been very helpful in mitigating or preventing Russia from really using their advantage, of course, but we can't solely rely on air air defense forces to prevent Russia's aviation from really hurting us. 
Uh, when I asked the Ukrainian pilot I knew, I asked him like, hey, what do you guys really need? At the end of the day, it's just quite simple. We need Western aircraft. Western aircraft, we don't need to outmatch Russia in numbers, but the quality of Western aircraft will give Ukraine a very large, like, big advantage. If we can get the aircraft and the proper munitions for them, then Ukraine can really start to work when it comes to trying to fight to get back or really dominate the airspace. It's going to be crucial for the next counteroffensive because there will probably be another big counteroffensive. Ukraine at this point, Ukraine is most likely preparing and planning for it. We don't know when it's going to be, but it will happen once they do actually get a lot of the Western arms that they need, like F-16s or any other potential Western aircraft that you can, Ukraine can get in some considerable numbers. My my thoughts in the Ukrainian Air Force is get them those F-16s. Let's get the Ukrainian Air Force to work. There are experienced pilots. There are people who can get the job done there. There are people who are very passionate about it. These guys are able to do it. We got to get them the planes. We need to. And it would be a very big help. Is, is it going to be the thing that ends the war? Probably not, but it sure as hell will make it a lot easier for Ukraine. I think Ukrainian troops on the ground would be, feel much better knowing that they got F-16s in the skies watching their backs and protecting them. One thing I feel, okay, one, I will give you one opinion, something that I am a a bit perplexed by is why there isn't enough conversation about also giving Ukraine potentially helicopters like uh, Blackhawks, APs. Apparently Ukraine, There, I read an article somewhere that Ukraine has requested from the Pentagon potentially getting more Blackhawks, Cobras, and Apaches, but I don't think the U.S. wants to send them any of that, which is a little odd. Even something like Blackhawks transport helicopters would be a huge help for Ukraine because Ukraine's helicopter fleet is quite old. It's mostly just ultra Soviet helicopters, which aren't bad. Again, Western technology is just mostly superior. <laughs> I'll say it like that. It, it would potentially be a huge help because Ukraine, Russia does have a pretty large number of attack helicopters. That's something we saw with the last counteroffensive. They really took use of those uh, attack helicopters and they definitely hurt us quite a bit. You know, Ukraine really doesn't have anything to match something like a K-52 or K-50. Um, if we can get Ukraine that potentially, that would be really interesting. But I don't really see anyone advocating for it, which is definitely odd. I'll say that. Because helicopters can make a huge difference on the battlefield, especially when it comes to, for example, evacuating wounded troops. If we can actually start doing stuff like that, I know that would be a great help for Ukraine. My thoughts on the Ukrainian Air Force are as simple as that. We need to get them the, the tech that they need because they are ready and they are capable. They just don't have the means to fight to the best. Thank you. It certainly makes sense. Back to you, Len. Thanks for that. That's really interesting insights. I've said before on this space, others have said it. A couple of points, just to echo some of the points that you made that I think were important in the big picture. We're not going to get into the weeds right now. That's for something called the air wing, by the way, which sounds like you, you should probably get in on. We have some guys on this space that like to get together every now and then, and especially with, with what's happening today, we may have one soon, but uh, that would be great to have you along. You mentioned a couple of things that, that uh, sparked my interest there. Like, for example, the, the idea of where they came from, and to me, this is historically on par with the Finnish Air Force 1939, with the Israeli Air Force 1948, really being able to, against, completely against the odds, where you would look at the ledger and think, there's no way they're going to even survive. Here we are, with two major losses to the Russians announced today, and still fighting. That's on the historical side, big picture. You mentioned the helicopters, and I think that takes us to, that makes me think of two things. First, that the role of the Ukrainian Army Aviation has been absolutely tremendous in this conflict. Maybe you had a chance to see some of that up close. Like you said, they're still very much using the Soviet stuff with nothing immediately in the pipeline to, to change that. I want to ask you about the big picture 
of where you think this Air Force has to go. Because from my point of view, it looks like this is an Air Force that, okay, probably may not be a NATO Air Force in the short term, maybe even medium term, but it's going to have to make the transition to, and it's historically unprecedented to, in the middle of an existential crisis, to really begin this transition from uh, one source of, of weaponry and one doctrine to Western. It seems to me that the big picture here is that, yeah, people have been laser focused on F-16s, rightly so. It's an important thing they have to have. There's a much bigger picture here of Ukraine really becoming an, a modern Western Air Force with their own, not just combat aircraft, like you said, their, their own helicopter support, uh, all of the enablers, airborne early warning, electronic intelligence, medical evacuation, aerial refueling, all of those parts that make a Western Air Force what it is. And it seems to me that if Russia, if they're going to really be this bulwark and be able to protect Ukrainian skies from an aggressive Russia, that is what they have to become eventually. So I'm wondering, do you agree with that? Do you think in the West we really have grasped that is, that's a massive task. It is a massive task. And I don't, maybe we haven't, I don't want to say for sure we have, or we haven't. I, I it feels like we haven't just because of the fact that we're giving Ukraine very piecemeal support. We'll give them modern tanks, for example, but very few. And I think it's problematic because Ukraine does, we see it within the armed forces. They are trying to change. They are trying to modernize very heavily. And there are reforms happening, restructuring. It's quite hard to restructure your military to a more NATO doctrine when you don't actually have all the necessary components to do that. I think in the long term, what I think will probably happen, because this isn't just something for the Air Force, we can apply this kind of to the entire armed forces as a whole. Ukraine tried to essentially created a somewhat modern military in the eight years since uh, 2014. They, But the whole military overall is not completely modernized. And there are definitely still aspects of the military that are very Soviet in nature. That's a problem. Ukraine has been able to adapt and essentially create a sort of intermediate kind of point where they are adopting more Western kind of doctrine, culture within their military, not completely. Some of it is going to be very hard for them. To, I, I don't know if all of it is possible, to be honest, during wartime. It's a very hard task for them to do during wartime. That's a very resource intensive and it just requires for the Ukrainian military to be able to focus solely on that. I don't think it's possible for them to do it during this war. But post-war, I think we're going to see Ukraine essentially changing slowly to a complete NATO doctrine. I think for some time, we're going to see Ukraine create this intermediate kind of thing where they do definitely are they're adopting NATO standards. They're still doing their own thing because they quite frankly have to. They might not have everything they need to really do it. That's definitely a problem, especially when it comes to ground forces. And I'm sure it's an issue in the air forces. We'll have to see, honestly. We'll have to see. At the current rate, this is where we are. NATO is not NATO. Ukraine is doing an incredible job and Ukraine has certainly modernized and Ukraine does have combat units that uh, are very much so up to par with uh, what NATO standards are. Again, it's still quite a mix within the armed forces. It's not universal completely. U Ukraine is really in a place where it's trying to do the best that, it's ca that it can, especially during a uh, really intense war. So we'll have to see. I, I think that's what's ultimately going to happen for some time. Oh, also. Oh, go ahead, Latin. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Robin. I was just going to put out, a, a, on behalf of others, uh, an invitation to join us sometime with uh, the air, air war conversation. You can uh, contact him and he can put you in touch with, uh, I think pretty soon we might have one because of the events of the last 24 hours. Of course. Of course. I would certainly be interested. I, I will also... I'll also try to, if I see it posted, I'll try to let you know in the air. Yeah. It's a, that's a great segment, yeah. the, the airway. 
I was, I was going to say also, one of the things I think that I've certainly seen some Western military people say is Ukraine is adopting NATO standards as much as it can, although without the air cover, which is a big issue. But also Ukraine, as of necessity, has been very innovative in certain things. So I mm-hmm. think that it's wrong to find that as much as Ukraine has to gain from adopting NATO standards, that Ukraine's experience is going to really inform a lot of NATO countries that haven't had that experience. I think that's going to be uh, an important thing going forward as well. Definitely. I think, I mean, we're with the amount of NATO or support from NATO countries we're seeing, they're definitely very interested to see what experience Ukraine, Ukraine can provide for them. We're seeing a lot of intelligence sharing for a fact that I, we know for a fact that the Western countries are providing a lot of intelligence to Ukraine because we are seeing Ukraine pull off some really interesting strikes. Look at what they just did the other day with shooting down these two aircraft, which fun fact, every time we get these big pieces of news with these aircraft being shot down, we, uh, we do celebrate here a little bit. <laughs> it's big news. Oh, yeah. Well, it really, yeah. really is amazing. And we here all wonder exactly yeah. how you pulled it off. <laughs> anyway, I see Tony's got a question for you sure. too. So go over to you, Tony. Hi, Eric. Thanks for your service. Tony from Australia here. Just wanted to tell you that I live in a shameful country where we're sitting on 43 F-18s and we're in the process of dismantling uh, 45 Taipan helicopters, even though Ukraine has requested them. There's been articles out that our government sought to find a buyer or find a country that would take them, but no one would take them, which is pretty lame excuse. The story is picking up steam here. I'm sorry for my country's decisions. Just know and share to everyone else that people around the world are with you instead of our leaders. It's just our leaders that we need to change their, their inept, cussy-footed inaction. Like I said, we've got helicopters, we've got F-18s, but we, our defense minister gets on television to guide about how many soldiers we're sending over to UK to train Ukrainian soldiers to walk into a war without any air support. I said it before, the emojis down there should have a tomato or a shoe there so then you can throw it at me instead of uh, a thumbs up or a, or a thumbs down. But uh, sorry about that, Yarek. Can I just, uh, if you wanted to reply, I've just got a question for Latin after Robin. Okay, we'll hold that now. Thanks, Tony. Okay, I see our friend Oyvind is up, so let's go to him for his question. A short question to Yarek. What I hear here is, uh, my impression from what I hear is that Ukraine have more pilots than they have capable aircrafts. Is that your impression too? Definitely. I directly asked the pilot that I know, and he said, yes, we, especially like after the first few months of the war where the Ukrainian Air Force did lose a lot of its aircraft, Russia was bombarding the country very heavily and overwhelming its air defenses. Most of Ukraine's long range air defenses, if I remember correctly, were destroyed. So the Ukrainian Air Force did suffer from the fact that they had more pilots than actual planes, flyable planes available. That, that was just the fact of it. I, that it's not even like a feeling. It was, that's exactly what happened. And I, it probably still is a bit of a problem. 
Uh, I know Ukraine was able to get more Soviet aircraft specifically. They got more MiGs from uh, certain uh, nations that still operated them. Even then, I don't think it was in really large quantities to the point where it made enough of a difference. Uh, Ukraine is still training pilots. I know that you should always have people who are capable of flying. That is definitely an issue. Ukraine does have capable pilots. It just does not have enough actual flyable aircraft for them. Thank you. I stepped down and listened. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Back to you, Tony. That's a disgraceful statistic. Now and then, it's shocking. Was I, I actually had just quick, just a quick thing when I spoke to the pilot because he came to celebrate my cousin's birthday with us. It was one thing he did mention to me was the fact that the aircraft he flies, he's not the only pilot that flies the MiG that he gets to fly. He might fly it for a few hours, but then it's shared between other pilots which usually that's not uncommon, but I know, for example, in the United States, you don't own the jet that you fly, of course, but usually pilots are assigned to an aircraft and you're the pilot who flies that aircraft for possibly years. But here in Ukraine at this point, they have to share a single aircraft. We're at that point. And that also means that, uh, that each aircraft is getting a lot more wear and tear than if it was to one dedicated pilot. Let to the point that Yaroslav just made about that level of use of, uh, of individual airframes. Maybe he can speak to us if you could about something that has come up on this space before. Sorry, I just kicked something. But the, the idea that we talk about the pilots a lot and great, those guys are out there risking their lives every day. Man, it's, I, I can't wait to read the book somewhere down the road about what the ground crew were doing, the conditions they were working in, the ability to recycle, to uh, regenerate airframes and, and, and battle damage and all those things all times of the year in different weather conditions and in dispersed locations, et cetera, et cetera. Have you gotten a sense of some of what they've been doing? Sadly, no, not too much. I've heard stories about it, primarily from the way that Ukraine would salvage lost aircraft that might have potentially been destroyed from bombing. They, the Ukraine really did not have that many flyable aircraft, but they were able to get more by literally salvaging and trying to repair or bring back aircraft that might be operable. I, I just know, I, I would imagine, and I know for a fact, they've done incredible work. They also did a lot of crowdsourcing, which is a pretty big thing here in Ukraine. There was like a little campaign, some pilots, I think in the English name, it would be translated to something like basically buy me a plane or buy me a flight. And they were able to crowdsource a lot of that too, funding so that their guys can actually repair aircraft and get them to fly. So we saw incredible work like that. I hear these stories like, wow, they're, these people are literally doing everything that they can to fight. They're going through every means possible. I think that's incredible, but let's be brutally honest. That's sad that they have to get to that point where people were crowdfunding to be able to like repair an aircraft. That should have never been the case. I think we really do need to do what we can to help them out and get them the aircraft, get them the parts that they need, do what we can really. It's as simple as that. Okay. Okay. We've had you on for a while. I think we're going to go another 10 minutes or so. Then I think we have to let Toyaroslav get on with his life. This has been absolutely wonderful. Let's go to Latin and our friend Meta, who, you, Yarek, I don't know if she's Meta, but all you have to do is say Griffin three times. She appears regardless of what time of day or night it is. But let's go to Latin first. Okay, I'll make it fast, Meta, so you can get, you can ask him about Griffins. My, my question, Yaroslav, was just generally the, uh, and, and because you're, it sounds like you've got the lead there on the, uh, on the fast chat community, you have a contact there. What are you able to tell us? Obviously, there might be things you're not able to tell us. It seems to me... Tell me if you agree with this, that one of them, if we zone in on their needs right now, what, one of the things that really stands out to me is that NATO has already committed these, this batch 
the, the actual number, we're still not sure of exactly, but of, of the MLUF-16s, that it's clearly a good start, but won't be enough to fully transition Ukraine's combat force to Western types. There is zero indication of a follow-up batch from the U.S. or, or any other countries that, that might be able to provide F-16s. Do you know if that is something that among the, their fighter pilots, that's something that they're aware of, that they're thinking that, look, we got to look beyond this initial Western donation because we have an Air Force to build? I'll be brutally honest with you. I never really had that kind of conversation with the contact I have. I can't really say too much on that. From what I do know, I think they are definitely looking towards the future and looking beyond because they are trying to build as much of an effective air force as possible. Even if they get the planes that they need or not, we can't just simply say that the Ukrainian air force is going to be a proper Western air force. It's still going to be the Ukrainian air force with much better technology. Ukrainians will have a long way to go to really being able to properly master and really put these kind of weapon systems to use most effectively. So we'll see. I, unfor unfortunately, I'm going to have to say no. I just, I never had that conversation with him, although I could ask. <laughs> I could get back to you with that. Yeah, we hope we, we hope this will be the, the the only the first of many talks we have with you. So you can put it on your list of things to look out, look into for us. Yeah, let's go over to Meta. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Great to have you here, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Ito is the head of the Ukrainian Air Forces. He has also three different kinds of airplanes, and that is F-16, F-18, and Gripps. Europe has donated now 60-70 F-16s, and the pilots are training at the moment. It's a little bit longer training than we hope. But anyway, they are there now. The day is approached and the Australian F-18, that's bugging me as well, Tony. And it's not your fault, of course. But just to have them dusting somewhere, it's ridiculous. I'm from Finland, Eric. We still fly F-18 and we are a bit closer than Australia when it comes to training. I think we could take those F-41 F-18s and uh, start training them whilst the home pilots are flying and their maintenance is working. As you maybe know, Zelensky has asked for the Finnish F-18s a couple of times, but we can't give them before we get F-35s. Uh, I'm not sure if it's this year. I'm not sure. Counting those, to get, of course, they could get our F-80 when we switched, and then we, they would be fully trained with uh, hundreds. And so we have 170 <laughs> from the 200 that Igna said that they need. When it comes to Swedish Gribbons, I'm all for it. They won't get many, that's for sure. But they can get like a squadron or two or something. But they come with meteor missiles and, and they are very, they fly very low. They are low on maintenance, say, land on highways, etc. It's a different kind of use of Western aircraft. Add 30 Gripens to the F-16s and, and the F-18s. There you go. 
you have 200 Western aircraft. I think it would be a very variable set because F-18s and F-16s, they still have different roles. Latin can tell all about it. But I think that there's your 200 and that's where we're, we should aim and Tony keep on pressing the Australian government. I'll keep pressing the Finnish government. Let's go. Thank you. I'll, I'll make a quick note on that. We Advocacy is very important when it comes to this people within their respective countries. If you support Ukraine, definitely try to advocate for Ukraine receiving these kinds of military pieces of equipment. It's interesting you bring up the grip because this is something that apparently Ukraine really wants. It's just Ukraine will never be able to get them in large numbers. Like you said, Gripens are apparently people consider them to be the perfect kind of aircraft for Ukraine, especially because, again, it's low maintenance and it can land on a highway, for example, on a road. Because that it, there is a concern within Ukraine here when I talk to people about F-16s that can read articles about it here in Ukraine. Sometimes the, one of the big issues isn't just is Ukraine capable of getting enough pilots, training enough pilots forward. Ukraine will definitely have issues fielding F-16s. Ukraine does have to look at its airfields and figure out where we're going to have F-16s. Are these airfields capable of having them fly in and out of? Russia, of course, is always looking out and trying to bomb every airfield possible. Even the pilot I spoke to, the airfield he's flying out of is pretty makeshift. It used to be an aircraft like graveyard of sorts, but they made it a active airfield again. It's that's just how it is now. Ukraine does have to constantly move its air forces around. That could prove to be an issue with F-16s potentially, but uh, I'm sure Ukraine will figure out solutions to all of it. Ukrainians are capable of doing it. At the end of the day, I hope everybody's doing what they can to advocate for Ukraine receiving the arms and uh, support that it needs. Thank you. I think, thank you, Yarosna. That is true. We have CC coming up all the time and reminding us to keep annoying our, our representatives in our home countries to uh, keep up the pressure that, that Ukraine needs to get the weaponry that we have available and quickly. Back to Tony, and I have one more question about how the news from the U.S. and U.K., how it's affecting the state of mind in Ukraine. But let's go to Tony first, and we're going. I think we're going to wrap up in another few minutes because Yaroslav does have a life to get back to. Over to you, Tony. Thanks. Sorry, Slav, for calling you, Eric. I missed your name. Oh, no, it's okay. That's what my parents called me. So that's if I get to know you, that's usually what people call me. So you can call me that. All right. And that's good. I'm glad to be part of your family. Rest assured that we're on the case here. There's apparently 73% of Australians are with Ukraine, and we are doing what we can, Mete and Eric, for the F-18s and helicopters and whatever we've got surplus. You probably don't know, but we've gotten 660 cold weather jackets that I think are probably in Ukraine now. We're after another 1,460 jackets that are due to be sold public auction. We're onto that. And I'm, I'm conscious of Yarek's time. Uh, most of my questions, Robin, are for Latin, if you're going to hang around with regards to the Taipans. And Latin will be around for a while? I hope so anyway. Yeah, Brooks. I just want to ask. Good. Thanks, Latin. Okay. Uh, Thank Yarsov, you. I want to ask you one, one uh, last question and then unless we have other pressing needs, like I would like to let you go. I'm curious about the waffling that's going on in the U.S. in terms of when the aid package is going to be passed and, you know, and exactly much, how much is going to be. Do you see much, much effect of that? I would, if I were in Ukraine, I think it would really disturb me a lot. I'm just wondering how what effect that's having on, on, I mean, on people in Ukraine? The, the, the short answer to that is yes. 
I've been here for just over a month and I've been doing everything I can to assimilate as quickly as possible and really understand where people are here. Ukraine is, again, a country at war, of course, and it's, there's a very dark and grim reality that people are existing in right now. War is, war brings with it very kind of dark characteristics. It brings in a lot of, it kills a lot of optimism and it's hard to maintain hope. It's a constant fight to just keep that. I do get questions from people. Some people figure out, oh, wait, he's from America or he's from wherever. People ask me, is America still going to support us? Do they care about us? Do they, are they just tired of the supporting us at this point? There, there is, to be completely honest, some degree, like a sense of abandonment. People do think that the U.S. might potentially not support Ukraine. When it comes to Europe, people feel very strong support from Europe to, to the Europeans that you're doing a great job. Thank you. Literally, like, thank you. Ukraine is uh, very grateful for that support. Ukraine is very grateful for all the American support. There is questions are starting to pop up. People are starting to question. They see articles, Ukrainian media is reporting about it. People don't know if U.S. help is going to be reliable in the near future. They don't. Uh, some of it also comes down to the fact that, look, people here might not fully understand how U.S. politics works sometimes. Yes, the, I hear that this aid package will get through. It's just it's going to take some time. But still, at the end of the day, people are concerned, they are worried, and they don't really know what the future is going to be like. There are questions people are wondering. People do think that maybe we're starting to get to that point where the U.S. or the American public might feel like it's just not worth supporting Ukraine anymore, which it doesn't mean that's the truth in the United States. People do support Ukraine in the United States, but I think the majority of the U.S. population does. It's just that, unfortunately, when it comes to our Congress and our politics, there's a lot of games to be played. And people, there, there are unfortunately certain politicians who don't really care as much and they might put their own interests above others. That's just how it is. That's the answer I'll provide you here. Not to get too deep into it, but yes, it, has, it is having an effect. So for all of us in the States here, we double your efforts. We got to push our legislators to do the right thing. And... Uh get this aid as quickly as possible. With that, I want to thank you so very much, Yaroslav, for giving us so much time this morning. I hope this is only the first of many conversations. We'll keep in touch, and I'm hoping as you go on with your journey that you'll be able to come back in touch with us and let us know what's going on with you. Definitely. I would love to do that. Again, thank you for having me. Again, I apologize for not being able to do it earlier, but we were able to make the time today and hopefully I answered your questions and I gave you guys some insight. If you ever want to contact me, feel free to. I can't promise an instant response, but I'll try to respond as soon as I can. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you for your service to Ukraine. We all appreciate it very thank much. Thank you for all of your support. Thank you. It's not Ukraine. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Okay, Tim, I think I'm going to, let's see, we're going to bring Mockers back up, and I think I'm going to uh, take my leave of you guys in a moment. Also, thank you so much for everyone. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate everyone coming up and and asking great questions and joining us. I hope, we'll, I hope we will continue in the future. Yeah, I think, Tim, I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm get, going to get out of Mockers' way so she can come back up. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Slava Ukraini. Thank you very much, Robin. Always a pleasure to hear from you.